Greetings, and welcome to Blue Stocking, the podcast for people who love to learn but don't always have time to study. I'm your host, Rory Roberts, and today, thanks to some inspiration from some hilarious women on the internet, internet, not the internet, uh, we are going to be delving into high school required reading. The other day, I came across this collection of Twitter responses compiled on the Pizza Bottle website by Laura Thompson. This was the first time I'd even heard there was going to be a remake of the film of uh, Lord of the Flies, but the responses from my fellow ladies had me in stitches, so I wanted to share. So apparently, there's an all-female re- reboot of Lord of the Flies happening, If you haven't read the book or seen the original film, it's about a group of boys who get trapped on a desert island and have to form their own society. Things quickly turn violent and chaotic, and basically the whole story is an examination of toxic masculinity. That's what makes an all-girl remake seem like a strange idea. Would a group of girls trapped on an island really behave the way boy characters do? I guess we'll find out. In the meantime, some of the funniest women on Twitter decided to turn their confusion and frustration with the idea into hilarious jokes. And a side note, today's podcast does have some strong language, thanks to these hilarious women, and I think it is apropos. Um, But just a heads up, if that is not something you are comfortable with, I would switch off for today. Cameron Esposito says, Female-centric Lord of the Flies, you say? How about a female-centric federal government, okay? I'll take that. Ali Ali Oxenfree says, The all-female Lord of the Flies makes no sense because we know what happens when women get their own island and it ain't killing each other. Incidentally, she also added a picture of Wonder Woman. Yes, ma'am. Roxanne Gay, that wonderful lady. An all-women remake of the Lord of the Flies makes no sense because the plot of that book wouldn't happen with all women. Jessica Valenti says, The all-female Lord of the Flies will just be a group of young women apologizing to each other over and over till everyone is dead. Uh, Hind Amory says, An all-female Lord of the Flies would result in the island Wonder Woman grew up on. Rachel Livermore, I'm assuming the all-female Lord of the Flies will involve the girls functioning, forming a functioning society and living peacefully. Erin Gloria Ryan says, an all-female reboot of Lord of the Flies is just Heather's Goes Camping. Side note, uh, if you get a chance to see the Heather's musical, I think it is worth a look. Hilarious. Wrong. So hilarious. And Alexandra Petrie says, but seriously, I think two men writing this all-female Lord of the Flies is piggy and it makes me want to Ralph. <laughs> Uh, Rachel Symes says, flies into frame on a broom. The thing about Lord of the Flies is that it's about systemic male violence plus how it replicates. Flies away. Uh, oh no, she twittin't said, the all-female Lord of the Flies movie will just be two hours of the girls enjoying not having their jokes mansplained to them. Yes, ma'am. Uh, Gavia Baker-Whitelaw says, all-female Lord of the Flies remake. Sounds like someone missed the fucking point of Lord of the Flies. Uh-huh. <laughs> Courtney Inlow says, a thousand words on how they already did an all-girl Lord of the Flies and called it Mean Girls. Yes. <laughs> 
Jessica Ellis. Guys, I know we're all upset about Lord of the Flies, but it should make my all-human adaptation of Animal Farm easier to sell. Andy Zessler, sa Andy Zeisler says, honestly, any remake of the Lord of the Flies seems kind of redundant right now, considering points in general direction of literally everything. And last but not least, Ali V says, I'd rather spend the rest of my life on an island where I'm the piggy than watch an all-female Lord of the Flies written and directed by men. Thank you, ladies. Uh, I laugh so hard reading these, which brings me to um, this article by Rianne Conk of The New Yorker that showed up on my Facebook feed this weekend. I decided I had to share all of this in a blue stocking episode, so uh, excerpt. My auntie told me not to run, the girl called Piggy said, on account of my asthma. Asthmar? Uh, yeah, replied Piggy, assuming she must have been misheard. Asthma, like it's hard to breathe? Wait. Oh my god, Ralphie said, rummaging through her purse. This is random, but I think I actually... Yeah, here it is. I totally have an inhaler. It's just been sitting in here since I had bronchitis last year. You can have it. Excerpt. And another thing, Jackie said. Should we have a rule that whoever has the conch gets to speak? You know, so no one gets interrupted? But who, ventured Simone, is here to interrupt us? The girls looked around. It was true. There was no one. They left the conch on the beach. Later, when they were rescued, the group agreed that Mara should take it home, since she was so crafty and could probably do something neat with it. Mara painted it seafoam green and used it to store jewelry, which eventually inspired to open her own Etsy shop, which was moderately successful. Excerpt. Hey, Jackie said, if I took this desiccated pig head down from this spike, would anybody split it with me? Excerpt. I know there isn't no beast, not with claws and all that, I mean, but I know there isn't no fear, either. Wow, said Roger, as Simone finished reading. Is that Rupi Kaur? Simone brushed, blushed proudly. No, she said, just some poetry I've been working on. Nice, Roger said absently, even though she thought that both Rupi Kaur's and Simone's poetry were mediocre at best. You should totally write a book. Excerpt. The next moment, Ralphie heard shouting, Ship! Ship! It's a ship! Ralphie's stomach dropped and she clambered to the top of the mountain. She couldn't see the smoke. Had the fire gone out? The ship was growing smaller against the horizon. At last, she reached the top and, to her relief, saw a blazing fire blowing gusts of smoke across the sky. Piggy turned to her from her spot next to it and smiled. Hi, she said cheerily. No one was up here, so I decided to take care of the fire. And, she added, pointing to a makeshift calendar she had constructed from palm fronds and ash, while I was waiting, I made a schedule just to make sure we all have shifts, and it's fair. That's a little passive-aggressive, Ralphie thought. That's amazing. You're a genius, Ralphie said. Excerpt. We need meat, Jackie said. The I'm a vegetarian, said Ralphie, so I'm honestly fine. Jackie rolled her eyes. Yeah, I think you've mentioned it, but the rest of us would really like to not die from protein deficiency. That's a common misconception, actually, uh, Ralphie offered. There are a lot of ways to get protein without needing meat. 
Yeah, Simone added. I mean, I eat meat, but I've read that it's actually great for the environment and for your health to have at least one meat-free day a week. So that's what I'm thinking of this as. Jackie was annoyed, but stopped herself from saying something rude. Hadn't she just been talking with her therapist about how she always sabotaged new relationships? Okay, she nodded. You're right. Back home, she started a blog about what she had learned from her weeks going going vegan. Her friends all secretly agreed that it was insufferable, but also that at least she hadn't murdered any of them or started worshipping a pig god. Excerpt. Simone staggered out of the woods, her hair matted and muddy. She wore a crude garment that she had fashioned out of leaves, and her eyes were wild. "'Simone!' cried Roger. "'I love your dress!' "'Thanks,' Simone said, gesturing. "'It has pockets!' Excerpt. And that, concluded Sam, is how Matt Damon broke up with Minnie Driver on Oprah. Ralphie wept for the end of innocence, the darkness of man's heart, and how she would never watch Goodwill Hunting the same way ever again. Excerpt. One thing we should establish straight away, said Ralphie, are the rules. Rule number one, no murder. At this, the girls broke into a chorus of laughter. Murder? asked Erica. Literally the only thing we're trying to do on this island is not die. Why? (laughs) But Sam couldn't finish her sentence. She was laughing too hard. Why would we murder anyone? Her twin finished. Peals of laughter rang out from the beach and carried across the water. Stop, yelled Ralphie. Stop, I'm seriously going to pee myself. Jackie wiped tears from her eyes. Oh my God, she said. I needed this. Later, When the girls were ragged and hungry, all any of them had to say to cheer the group up was murder, and that would set them all off giggling again. Now, all of this got me thinking about the works I read in high school that I probably wouldn't have read otherwise, so I decided to share some of my favorite reading memories from that time. I'll confess to not being overly excited when I was first assigned The Good Earth by Pearl S. Buck. I'd had a great amount of freedom in choosing what I read for school when I was in junior high, but high school, at least the first two years, was a barrage of books that I probably never would have picked up on my own. I remember thinking, what does this book have to do with me? Why is my teacher making us read this? It's old. I wish I could tell my own students when I give them assignments that they think are irrelevant, as I did all those years ago, that we're not so very different, but they're as likely to believe that as I was. The Good Earth is a beautifully written and heartbreaking and probably one of the first classics I ever read, not counting Shakespeare, which is a story for another day. There's actually a graphic novel adaptation that's been recently published, and I'd like to share a review by Mara Danoff of the Comics First website, who calls Nick Bertozzi's version an adaptation for a modern era. If it's not broken, why fix it? Often, this is the mindset people have when it comes to adaptations of beloved books. Personally, I'm all for adaptations of novels. While reading may appear universal, it's still limiting the audience to those comfortable with the written word. For works that address important topics like classism and gender roles, it's vital that they're accessible to as many people as possible. The Good Earth by Pearl S. Buck adapted by Nick Bertozzi, carries the message of empathy that somehow still needs repeating. 
and because of its visual format, Buck's novel is now made available to a larger audience than ever before. The plot of The Good Earth is fairly straightforward. Wang Lung marries a slave girl named Olan, and the two work very hard together on the farm. They're initially quite fortunate with their crop yield, and Wang Lung has the forethought to hold on to grains during the winter to sell throughout the new year. Unfortunately, a famine strikes. One of their own children even suffers from a developmental handicap due to malnutrition. Eventually, a food riot erupts at a rich man's house. The money Olan manages to steal from this riot is invested in their own land. As time wears on, the family grows their wealth, yet they too eventually grow beyond their means. Wang Lung is a sympathetic character. The author makes it perfectly clear he worked for everything in his possession. While the value he places on family and especially land don't quite parallel today's concerns, they definitely mirror those of the 1930s. The Great Depression needed characters like Wang Lung. In a way, he's the Chinese counterpart to Tom Joad in The Grapes of Wrath, just an ordinary farmer trying to make do in a cruel world. When Pearl S. Buck wrote this tale in 1931, there was little sympathy for societies outside of Western influence. Many of those living in the so-called civilized world failed to recognize that other cultures weren't inferior, they were just different. These different cultures shared the same concerns of wanting to accumulate wealth and surpass their station in life as Westerners. Without Buck's humanizing novel, Americans might have never gained the appreciation for Chinese culture that they later did. So why would this story matter today? Surely a book written for the 1930s American audience holds little relevance for today's society. We're no longer completely defined by our nations. Broken barriers and increasing immigration make it harder and harder to simply categorize people as it once was. However, our rapidly expanding world can birth new anxieties about seemingly irreconcilable differences between different groups of people. It's understandable why these anxieties exist. Differences can sometimes be scary because they represent a kind of unknown. While I don't know what it's like to till the soil Wang Lung spends the majority of his existence doing, I do know what it's like to have the expectation to perform a certain way put upon me. I understand what it's like to want to surpass the generation before me and to desire wealth and prosperity for my family. These desires are nearly universal across cultures. I think that's why the good earth had the impact it did in its time. People realized we had a lot more in common with those that we perceive as different than we may have originally thought. It's no secret I struggle quite a bit with reading. While it's a skill I've managed to obtain, I know many others who lack the fortune I do. These people still deserve to know the story and lesson of the good earth, even if they can't grasp the words of the original book. Making the Good Earth into a graphic novel makes the story accessible to a wider audience. For those who struggle with reading, graphic novels can be a lot less intimidating to pick up than text-laden novels. Images accompanying the text help the reader paint a picture of the scene. In this adaptation, the lack of panels between images helps ease the flow of the comic and make it feel more like a regular book. Nick Bertozzi's images appear as sketches, yet the line work is superb. He portrays so much emotion and detail in such a small amount of space. 
Bertozzi performs an artistic feat by transforming the dense book into a flowing graphic novel. With each section, you really get a sense of the character's struggles. There is a certain weight to the character's movements, as if each decision they make determines whether they live or die. While I never read the original story, I imagine that Bertozzi has correctly captured the emotional weight of Buck's novel. It's funny how history always seems to repeat itself. Once again, Americans seem unable to recognize the humanity in others, and it appears that it's up to fiction to rectify this. Learning from the past, modern-day readers of The Good Earth might recognize the humanity in those different from themselves. This ability to realize that we all face a similar set of struggles is vital towards creating a more empathetic culture. Hopefully, Wang Lung's tale does that once more in the 21st century through Nick Bertozzi's adaptation. As always, there are links in the, in the show notes to these articles. If you follow the link for the review of the graphic novel adaptation of The Good Earth, you'll get to see some of the beautiful artwork mentioned and get a taste of to see whether this book is one for you. Now, that covers my freshman and sophomore years. Um, my junior year of high school, I got into a book or a book series rather that I had been dreading and avoiding in the obstinate way that only a self-righteous teenager can. I was supposed to read the first book in the Harry Potter series, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone for a academic competition that I was a part of. Um, it's called UIL, University Interscholastic League, and it's something that happens in Texas. Um, they have academic and athletic competitions ranging anywhere from football for the athletic side to speaking, to speech, to math, to history and debate, all these different subjects in the academic side. And one of the academic sides was the Lit Crit, Literary Criticism Competition, in which you read a selection of works that changed each year and took a test on the works, kind of like a AP test or SAT test, but just for those literary works. And my junior year, I was signed up for this competition through my junior English teacher who was a wonderful, amazing, patient, awesome woman who put up with way too much from me, but I think did so partly because she was friends with my mother who also taught at that school. Um, and we had to read Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Now, this is the time before the movies had been made, just, just before the first movie came out. And they were the books were getting very popular and so of course little pre-hipster me was adamant that I would not read those books because I thought they were all hype and couldn't possibly be as good as people said so I refused to read it until a couple weeks before our main competition for literary criticism and we had our first contest, uh, like a practice contest, and I placed fifth or sixth 
and my teacher came back to me with my test and my scores and she gave me a very stern look and said I would have placed first if I had gotten the answers for Harry Potter correct. Um, So (laughs) I was duly ashamed and shamed into reading the book that weekend and wouldn't you know it, I read the whole thing, the whole first book, cover to cover, that Sunday afternoon and evening, and it was so good. Uh, it's a beautifully crafted children's story that somehow manages to also touch adults and touch on themes that are universal, and I have been hooked ever since, and one of my favorite things about it is that it has helped others get into reading as well. So I will always have a soft spot in my heart for the Harry Potter series, even though I was adamant that I would not read them. I also got into Maya Angelou that year, thanks to the same English teacher, and I'd like to cover her on another episode, so I'm not going to talk about her much today. Just know that there are some interesting stories coming from that outlet. And also, for the first time, read Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. Now, Mary Shelley was a teenager when she first wrote Frankenstein and, and came up with the concept for this gothic story that has endured over time. There are some really interesting stories surrounding this. There is a graphic novel series called The Unwritten, part of which takes place in the manor house where uh, Frankenstein first came into being. And I will post links to that in the show notes. There is also a fascinating episode of the Imaginary Worlds podcast called The Year Without a Summer, about the year in which Frankenstein was written, when the weather changes had huge, drastic effects on society as a whole because of all of these different things going on in relation to changes in the weather that had major impact on on markets, on the common people. It just insane that this isn't covered more in history classes. Um, and I will post a link to that show if I can find it as well. And my senior year, oh, my senior year, so special. Um, I had a coach, which I know there's kind of a, um, not a stigma, but a stereotype about coaches who get stuck teaching English or history and uh, supposedly aren't very good at that. But I, I think that this coach in particular was such a great example of how that's not necessarily true. He was so passionate about what he was teaching us. And he also introduced me to so many works that I never would have experienced if not for him. And it is thanks to him that my obsession and love of Tom Stoppard started because he introduced us to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead after we read Hamlet. 
And I'd like to share an excerpt from that particular play with you now. Uh, These are Rosencrantz's thoughts on mortality. Do you ever think of yourself as actually dead, lying in a box with a lid on it? Nor do I, really. It's silly to be depressed by it. I mean, one thinks of it like being alive in a box. One keeps forgetting to take into account the fact that one is dead, which should make all the difference, shouldn't it? I mean, you'd never know you were in a box, would you? It would be just like being asleep in a box. Not that I'd like to sleep in a box, mind you, not without any air. You'd wake up dead for a start, and then where would you be, apart from in a box? That's the bit I don't like, frankly. That's why I don't think of it. Because you'd be helpless, wouldn't you? Stuffed in a box like that, I mean, you'd be in there forever. Even taking into account the fact that you're dead, it isn't a pleasant thought. Especially if you're dead, really. Ask yourself, if I asked you, straight off, I'm going to stuff you in this box now, would you rather be alive or dead? Naturally, you'd prefer to be alive. Life in a box is better than no life at all, I expect. You'd have a chance, at least. You could lie there thinking, well... At least I'm not dead. In a minute, someone's going to bang on the lid and tell me to come out. Hey, you, what's your name? Come out of there. I wouldn't think about it if I were you. You'd only get depressed. Eternity is a terrible thought. I mean, where is it going to end? Whatever became of the moment when one first knew about death. There must have been one. A moment in childhood when it first occurred to you that you don't go on forever. It must have been shattering, stamped into one's memory. And yet, I can't remember it. It never occurred to me at all. What does one make of that? We must be born with an intuition of mortality. Before we know the words for it, before we know that there are words, out we come, bloodied and squalling with the knowledge that for all the compasses in the world, there's only one direction, and time is its only measure. I just think that Stepard has such a way with words. Uh, he has a, another line, the character of the player king in Hamlet, where the player king says, Don't you see... We're actors. We're the opposite of people. And it's one of my favorite lines in literature because it's so true. I feel like I can say that as an actor because we are the opposite of people. Um, Well, that is it for today, I think. And uh, I'm going to leave you with... um, some outro music that I have been playing with. I'd like to offer more eventually. Um, This is a mix inspired by an old hymn that's a favorite of mine, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. As always, links are in the show notes. If you would be kind enough to rate, subscribe, and review on iTunes or Google Play, that would be much appreciated. And if you have suggestions or questions or comments, please feel free to email bluestockingpod at gmail.com. Thanks again. Have a great day.
Ooh.